a cuppa and a good chinwag? The story has real-life stories to inspire and make you smile. Weekdays on Vision and on demand in the app. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Naomi, you've just completed uh, three days of training in Sydney with a number of different uh, chaplains from a variety of experiences and backgrounds and you've got uh, another workshop coming up in Melbourne soon. What is it that brings you to Australia to do this sort of training? I'm always excited about being in new places, helping people uh, with resources to help them do a good job as being a chaplain. Sometimes when someone comes from a different country, we bring other techniques and uh, possibilities. So I think sharing those kinds of techniques, possibilities, thoughts that we have, ideas that we have, uh, can be very mutually helpful. So I've learned a lot while I was here about the way it's done here, and I hope that people have had a chance to learn a little bit from me too. Can you explain some of your background now? Um, Saying you're a chaplain is exactly right, because you are a chaplain, but there's a little bit more to you than just being a chaplain, isn't there? Well, sometimes, yes. Um, I have been privileged to be able to be a chaplain in many different kinds of settings over the years. I've been a chaplain for more than 30 years, almost 40, in fact. So during that time, I have been a chaplain in a hospital setting, also in law enforcement, have also been um, a chaplain to a Fortune 50 company. So being in many different kinds of contexts has really given me an opportunity to experience what chaplaincy could be like in possibilities in places where we don't even have chaplains yet. So another piece of what I do is I teach at a seminary level both the master's and the doctoral level in chaplaincy to prepare people to do chaplain-style ministry in many different kinds of contexts. So today we have chaplains in um, motor speedways, we have chaplains in casinos, we have chaplains who um, are obviously in the military and healthcare, those are the most common places, but we also have chaplains that are chaplains to professional sports and in the oil field and in almost any kind of context that you can think of, we now can put a chaplain. Now, some of that experience that you've just mentioned has continued on. You've used the experiences and the knowledge that you've gleaned from working in those settings, and you're currently working in a disaster relief kind of setting. Can you explain what a disaster relief chaplain looks like in a terminology of what they do and how they do it, and and why have a chaplain at a disaster relief when usually you think of disaster relief being the people who are on the ground trying to clean up and uh, move things out of the way so life can go back to normal? A big part of disaster relief chaplaincy has to do with the fact that when people have been through a significant traumatic experience like a disaster, their world really is turned upside down. And when their world is turned upside down, sometimes they just need a safe place to talk about what that has been like for them. Chaplains in disaster relief are often people that help people find meaning in the experience that they have just been through. 
So finding hope and having meaning in what they have experienced is a big part of helping them go through the process of coping with what they're going through and then being able to adapt with the intention of having a future that could be healthy. So while chaplains are in the field, often what they are doing is being a good listener, helping people do the catharsis, the venting that they need to do, talking about what they have been through. And when people can talk about what they have been through and talk about it in a safe place, a place where nobody judges them, a place that is open, uh, caring, compassionate, uh, people seem to do better. Their stress level starts going down. Many times, uh, just talking about it is what people need more than anything else. So chaplains learning to be good listeners is one of the best things that we do. In disasters, people also have lost a lot. They've lost their home. They've lost property. They've lost a sense of safety. And when chaplains can be there to help them grieve those kinds of losses that they've had, it helps people be able to get through the very difficult moments of having to see their home destroyed again, uh, to, to have to deal with the fact that their hopes and dreams are not going to be realized the way they thought that they would. So even hopes and dreams uh, are shattered during disasters. And sometimes having a chaplain there is the only way they can get through some of the disappointment and the grief that they have. So disaster relief chaplains are usually trained in stress management, stress mitigation, in other words, how to help people get their stress level down, but they're also highly trained in grief support. People don't need therapy yet at that point. What they need is support, and they need compassionate, caring ears. So when people are good listeners, they also can support people during their grief and then help them clarify options for their future. Uh, what will I do tomorrow? Not knowing what to do doesn't mean that we can tell them what to do, but we can certainly help them clarify what options there are for tomorrow. So empowering people to be able to make choices, to make good decisions day by day by day are a huge piece of what chaplains do in the field, especially during disasters. In the past, there have been a few organizations that provided that kind of chaplain support in the field. Today, we have many, many organizations that provide chaplain support. In some uh, countries around the world, there are even organizations uh, nationally and internationally where different faith groups and non-government agencies come together to collaborate and communicate so that they can cooperate in the field when a disaster happens. That way we don't um, forget to do some things, but we don't overlap on services either. So it's become a much more effective way to do the services in disaster relief. We also have to remember that the very people who do the cleaning up and all that rest restorative kind of work also have issues uh, while they're doing that work. So chaplains also take care of the responders. Chatting to Dr. Naomi Pageant, a chaplain primarily, she describes herself as a chaplain, but also a chaplain trainer and coordinator. From your perspective as a chaplain coordinator, Naomi, what are some of the areas that you have sent chaplains into and what sort of experiences have they had and how do you think that's shaped their particular 
uh, expression of chaplaincy? Many of the places that we send chaplains are in the domestic area. I'm from the United States, so obviously most of the chaplains that we deploy into the field are in the United States. But sometimes there are international settings where there are not enough resources, so then we do send chaplains to those places too. When we send chaplains to those places, it's often about the fact that the chaplains need to be the compassionate, non-judgmental presence in the middle of the chaos and all of that's going on. When we do send chaplains into those kinds of places, almost every chaplain reports back that their worldview has expanded that the way they understand chaplaincy, caring for people, being the compassionate presence uh, changes, it grows, because the way we do it internationally uh, changes so much. The fact that there's so much diversity in the world says that we have to learn how to be compassionate in many different ways. And the way we do it at home is not always the most effective way in another country. So some of the places where our chaplains have gone include places like Haiti, Nepal, um, Japan, the Philippines, American Samoa. We've sent them to Ukraine, to Serbia. We've sent them all over the world. And in every one of those places, chaplains report back that people are people no matter where you go. Their fears, their concerns are still basically the same. Uh, they want to have safety. They want to be able to live what we would call a normal life. They want to have their friends and family close by. Uh, they don't want to be afraid and have to live in fear. So those kinds of things are very, very consistent around the world. Uh, the way we deliver the services sometimes is different. And often it's because of the language barrier more than anything else. But we have to use interpreters. And it's not always... to easy to interpret our meaning when uh, the language is so different. I guess that is one of the challenges too when you start working internationally in any field but uh, even more so in chaplaincy because it's not a it's not a cut and dried area is it as you just said you it's not about a equals b equals c equals d it's how do we discuss and feel and that's not always something that's easy to um, communicate through an interpreter or a translator or into another language, is it? No, you're absolutely right. In fact, when you talk about values and beliefs, when you talk about meaning, those things sometimes are so ambiguous. Uh, they're nebulous. They're hard to grab a hold of. So using an interpreter becomes very challenging because even when somebody says, um, I love this, well, what does that mean? You're romantically uh, attached to it or you really like it or you appreciate it. It's very hard to translate even a word like love. So sometimes we have learned that we have to use um, examples rather than try to use the word. So we describe what it is or describe the intention rather than use a word for that intention. So, for example, in Japan, providing spiritual care was what we were doing, but there was no Japanese word that could translate directly for what spiritual care was all about. But a very wise man said to me, what you're really doing is heart-to-heart -heart care. 
Now, that was the, the meaning, the value, the intention, and yet there was no direct way to express it in any other way. It's a beautiful picture of what we were really doing, heart-to-heart care. It's fascinating when you think about how words change and um, when you're communicating in this particular way through a chaplaincy role, words can make a big impact, good or bad. Yes, you're absolutely right. In fact, there have been times uh, when we have probably made mistakes. The good thing about it is that when we do make mistakes and people know that we have made a mistake, if we apologize and we try to get it right the second time, most people are very forgiving about that because they know that our intention was good, but we have to admit that we made a mistake. Mm. I guess that's about admitting that you're wrong and being willing to accept what happens next too. Uh, Naomi, tell us a little bit about your faith background. Now, chaplains these days come in a variety of different shapes, sizes, experiences, as we've just discussed. And you even mentioned before that um, the understanding of a chaplain can be different depending on your faith background, depending on your country of origin. Um, So tell me a little bit about your faith background and how does that shape your particular understanding of chaplaincy? I happen to be a Southern Baptist, and from my own faith tradition, we have what we very clearly understand as a Great Commission, and the Great Commission is to share the good news. But we also have a great commandment, and the great commandment says that we love God and love others. So based on what the great commission and the great commandment say to me, as as a Christian and as a Baptist, being a compassionate person and going into the world to be that compassionate person um, is very much what I understand being a chaplain is all about. Uh, I don't wait for people to come to me. Um, My role is to go to where the hurt and the the needy are. The, The scripture in my tradition says that when we take care of other people and we feed the hungry and we meet the needs of those who have needs, when we visit the the lonely, that we serve our God, our Lord. So in many ways, if I'm serving the Lord, then I'm doing the very thing that he asked me to do by going into the field and taking care of other people. For me, that is the motivation. That is uh, the very reason why I do what I do. I believe that God called me to be a chaplain and to do exactly that. Uh, There has never been a doubt in my mind that that is what I was called to do. So sometimes it means sacrifice on my part, and my family has sacrificed for it also. But it's still meaningful for me, and I wouldn't change it. So I feel privileged that I get to do it. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.